Right, well, good morning to church. Uh, today we are continuing our supplemental sermon series through the book of James. This is now the fifth sermon on James's epistle, and today we will cover just two verses, uh, chapter 1, verses 26 through 27. The last several sermons on James have uh, shown us the, the main focus of his book, specifically the need to respond correctly in the midst of our trials. As you know, James is a very practical book that is very focused on the direct application of our faith. And uh, today you're going to see that James, in these uh, two verses, gives a three-part outline on what the remainder of his practical epistle will be focused on. And this gives us an opportunity to look more deeply at each of these very important central points. I'll be honest with you, I struggled a little bit um, with just focusing on only these two verses, but there's so much packed in there that I decided that we needed to slow down to look at these three particular, um, I guess, uh, exhortations that, that, that James gives us. Uh, and this is really going to not only better prepare us to more deeply and understand and appreciate the entire remainder of James's book, it's also going to help guide us in appreciating the extreme depth and gravity of James's exhortation to his readers. And in light of James's practical focus that he has found throughout his epistle, his practical focus specifically on wisdom, I have chosen three specific Proverbs as our Old Testament reading for today. Each of these Proverbs was specifically chosen to directly apply to each one of James's three points on what our, quote, true religion, the title of today's sermon, as Christians should look like as we sojourn on this earth. And so our Old Testament reading today will come from Proverbs 18.21, 14.21, and 4.23. The New Testament reading, which will be our sermon text for today, will come from James 1.26-27, as we work to finally, after five sermons, conclude the first chapter of James. Here now, the reading of God's most holy word. Proverbs 18.21 Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. Proverbs 14.21 Whoever despises his neighbor is a sinner, but blessed is he who is generous to the poor. Proverbs 4.23 Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. The New Testament reading now from James 1, 26-27. Here again, the reading of God's most holy word. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the wisdom that comes from your word. We thank you for the increasingly practical wisdom that comes from James. I pray that hearts would be open, Lord, that we would hear your word clearly especially, Lord, with it being so practical that we would see what you are calling us to, to do with these words that come from James. Help our hearts to be attentive. 
of our minds to be clear. May your spirit work in all of us, Father. May you be with me as I preach the word to your church. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Church, the uh, teachings found in James are profound. Increasingly, as I study this book, the profoundness only continues to grow. Um, So much so that I decided that it's most beneficial to slow down and to just look at these two verses, which James gives his three exhortations, which also will serve, for the most part, as the outline for the remaining topics of his entire book. By looking at James's three concluding points in more detail, it's, it's my hope that we will come away even more inspired, even more encouraged by James's teaching, just as I have been through the studying of this epistle. So as we finally come to conclude the first chapter of James, uh, James concludes by presenting to his readers these three very central yet very practical displays of what, quote, true religion should look like. And to set the stage for these three points... It's important to uh, take a moment to review again the main theme of chapter 1. By doing this, it's very helpful to help set that context yet again in understanding the immense importance of James's exhortation at the end of this first chapter. And so in briefly recapping James 1, 1 through 25, we remember that the first 18 verses of uh, James's first chapter are all connected under one section under the writing of the theme of how we, the church, are to face trials. In verses 2 through 4, we saw that James was teaching the people of God how we are to, quote, consider it joy when we face trials of various kinds. Here, James was providing uh, for the church the proper worldview perspective or interpretation that we should adopt in the midst of our trials and tribulations as we sojourn on this earth. Next, in James uh, 5 through 8, James goes beyond just a perspective that Christians should consider when facing trials, and he begins to go deeper in explaining the practical applications of how believers can attain such a perspective, which was through wisdom, more specifically, the wisdom of God. It's important here to make note of the practical wisdom that James presents, for this is the core theme of his entire book, Practical uh, Wisdom. In fact, it would be proper And many theologians would consider James to be the New Testament book of wisdom. But the wisdom that James describes to his readers must be asked for. And it must be received, very importantly, must be received in faith. For James tells the reader that to ask for such wisdom and then respond in doubt means that the asker is, quote, like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. Then in verses 9 through 18, we saw that these verses broke down into three different sections. Verses 9 through 12, James gives a direct and specific example of the types of trials many in the church at that time were enduring. In these verses, James contrasts and explains the difference between the rich and the poor of the time, warning the rich while encouraging the poor, having that contrasting theme that we see a lot throughout James. In verses 13 through 15, James gave clarification into the topic of temptations that believers often faced in the midst of their trials. Here he explains that sin is what tempts us during trying times. It is not the Lord, it is our sin. Thus here James begins to merge his theme, focusing on the need, very important, the need to have a right heart 
toward God in order to both endure the trials of the time and also in order to receive the wisdom that is needed in order to endure these trials. In verses 16 through 18, James begins to work toward a conclusion of his section on facing trials as he gives his audience theological insight into the role of God in the midst of his people's trials and tribulations in this life. Encouraging the people of God to remain positive and optimistic in the midst of their hardships. This is important because this is how James sets the stage in merging to the application section of the wisdom that he is explaining to his readers. Because in James 19 through 25, after completing his section on how believers are to face trials, James continues to build upon the themes of practical wisdom as he further directs and exhorts God's people on the how. They are to respond in light of what he taught in verses 2 through 18. Thus, we clearly see that James is a responsive book, requiring action from the reader as James exhorts the church toward practical and wise actions. Thus, the flow of James's message, if I again were to break it down to a very simplified form, would go something like this. Consider it joy when you face trials of various kinds, Two, for we know that our trials are working in us a greater good through the sovereign will of the Lord. Three, and if we lack wisdom in our trials, we should ask God, but we must ask in faith. Four, so stay humble, avoid temptation, and keep your heart pure before God. And remember that when you are tempted, not to blame God, for it is sin that tempts us, not God. Five, because God is perfect. And he is working all things for good in his people. Six, therefore we as God's people should be quick to hear, primarily to the word of God. Slow to speak, primarily in our response to God. And slow to become angry, primarily in responding to God's sovereign will for our lives. James here gives three points in that section. And so next... Verses 19 through 21, the people of God need to properly hear and respond to the word of God. Thus, verses 22 through 25, the people of God must do or act upon the word of God. There is action now that we must put into play. And in the last two verses, as he comes to conclude, verses 26 through 27, James lists three things, three distinct things that the believer, the true believer in his true religion should exhibit in his or her life as they humbly serve their creator in this world. Church, it's important that we recap like this because the book of James is very, very structural in its teaching. You have to follow closely to the context of James to fully appreciate and understand the application that he's making. Prior to me going in and studying James in detail, I thought it was just a very practical book. But like most things in scripture, James especially so, there's so much if you look at the depth of what the author is putting there. James has so much packed in underneath what he's saying that it's easy to look at James and just say this is the practical book with a couple of practical teachings and to go over it. You find this also in the Proverbs. Very simple statements. The Old Testament reading today was very simple. Each one of those small phrases, two lines, could have been a sermon within itself. There's so much at the depth of it. This is so true in James. As we clearly see, James is the book the book of faith, wisdom, and action in the New Testament. And James could have chosen a wide range of topics or exhortations to describe to the church of what true religion should look like. Think about all the work that he's done to build up to verses 26 and 27. And he could have listed anything 
a plethora of things that the church should then do, but he only lists three, and there's so much in those three. And what are those three things? They are this, to control one's tongue, to visit widows and orphans in their afflictions, and three, to keep oneself from being unstained by the world. Brothers and sisters, James is profound, yet it is so simple and applicable. Pay close attention to what James says, for if we consider ourselves to be true Christians, according to James, living out a true faith in this life, then these three characteristics of wise living must, absolutely must, according to James, mark and define our faith, both individually and also corporately. So let's look more closely at these three wisdom characteristics that James presents to us. First, in verse 26, as we've seen throughout chapter 1, James is contrasting the person of God against the worldly person. Culminating at the end of chapter 1 into the actions that the godly individual should display in contrast to the one that is not godly or ungodly. In verse 26, James tells his readers that if they consider themselves religious, or how they actually live out their faith, yet do not control, or James says bridle, using the term for what draws and directs a horse, which he'll explain later in chapter 3. If they do not control or bridle their tongue, then their religion is worthless. These are the words of James. Their religion is worthless. The word worthless that James uses is similar to the word, we find this word in the Septuagint, that is used in the Old Testament to describe the worthlessness of idol worship. How useless and worthless an idol truly was. This showed that not only was the religion now useless, it was also potentially destructive, should one not control the use of their tongue. James's reference, uh, James references speech many more times throughout this book. And he gives the impression that the action of the tongue was likely a potential problem in the assembly, but James's reference to the tongue goes much, much deeper than just speech. That's the beauty found in James. There's so much more there than just speech. Certainly it includes speech, but so much more. In other words, again, James has a surface meaning that simultaneously has a much deeper meaning as well. I gave the uh, analogy, I think, uh, a few sermons ago about an iceberg. You see the tip. James presents the tip, but underneath it is 90% of what is truly there. And why? Because it is the tongue. It is the tongue that ultimately reveals the heart. The tongue is a very powerful thing, James will, will tell us. He tells us here and he will tell us more. There is great power in the tongue, and one of its powers is it, is it is the revealing, it is the window to one's heart. As Jesus says in Luke 6.45, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Therefore, if the heart is right, One's speech, in turn, will be right because, because, listen carefully, a controlled tongue means a controlled body. A controlled tongue means a controlled body. See also James 3.1. 
Brothers and sisters, when you think about a wise person, perhaps a pastor or a mentor or a theologian, a large portion of how you come to conclude that that person is wise is largely based on how this person uses his or her tongue. But it is not the tongue alone that defines this wise person. It is how this person displays their self-discipline and self-control that ultimately displays their wisdom. It's how they live. It's how they live. For obedience to God is to live a self-controlled life. And one of the central displays of a self-disciplined and self-controlled life is a controlled tongue. James will have much more to say about the tongue later in chapter 3, but for now we see that his main point in verse 26 is that true religion, true religion, or the life of the truly God, uh, godly and wise Christian, is one that is self-controlled. Self-controlled. Because James will say later, uh, the, the tongue, who, who can control it? That's his whole point. It is the thing, it is like a wild horse that needs to be tamed. And if one can control their tongue... Indeed, they have mastered their own body. Because, according to James, a religious profession that does not control the use of the tongue is not only self-deceiving, it is, and again, James's words, worthless. Worthless. This is why Scripture has so much to say about the use of one's tongue. If you are familiar with Scripture, you'll many, many times, many, many places... For the tongue holds much power in revealing the state of one's heart. A wise person, listen to this, a wise person has cultivated a content and godly heart. And so their words are both wise and beneficial. That is what a wise person does. They speak with wisdom. Look again at the book of Proverbs and notice how much of this entire book of wisdom references the use of one's tongue. In fact, for these three points, there were multiple scriptures that I could have chosen out of the book of Proverbs to represent each one of these because it was talked about several times. These themes are continually in there, especially uh, pertaining to the tongue. The book of Proverbs again and again defines this wise person by the things that they say or don't say, right? Having control over that uh, a tongue, oftentimes refraining from speech, is also a display of wisdom. And it equally defines the fool and evil man by how they use their words, often in the excess of the use of their words. Because a wise man controls his tongue, but a fool, a fool, does not. Furthermore, the adulterer, the liar, the gossip, the flatterer, and the false witness are all also defined to the reader throughout the book, often by how they use their tongue. The New Testament makes several references to how one ought to use their words. Ephesians 4.29 tells us that our words must be carefully chosen in order to build up our fellow brethren. Alluding to the fact that uncarefully chosen words have the potential to tear down and to harm others. And in Matthew 12, 33 through 37, Matthew 12, 33 through 37, Jesus presents a most profound teaching about our speech. Absolutely profound. Explaining that our words are in fact a direct representation of who we are at the core of our being, at the core of our heart. Listen carefully to Jesus' words. 
teaching in these verses. Matthew 12, 33 through 37. This is underneath the, the, the heading in scripture. A tree is known by its fruit. You're probably familiar with this. Starting in verse 33. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, Jesus says, <clears throat> or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers. He's referring here to the evil Pharisees of the time. You brood of vipers. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word that they speak. For by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. So much packed in to that scripture alone. But what a profound teaching on the connection between one's heart and one's use of their tongue. It's as clear as day. James is saying this. Christ says it several times throughout the Gospels, multiple areas, on giving clarification that our hearts, what's stored up in there, will ultimately come out in our speech and actions. Can you see here why it's so important that we slow down at this point in James and look so carefully at this broader application of what he's saying in in these two verses, verses 26 through 27? Here, James is certainly referencing our need to be careful with our words. We, we, We must recognize that. James is saying, you should be cautious, church, brothers and sisters, with the words that you say. But he is displaying the much deeper theological teaching that our words will actually display to others what is stored up within our hearts. You can't fake it till you make it. Your heart will display who you are over time. It it will do that in your words, and in time it will do it in your actions. Christ also uh, explains this very clearly throughout the Beatitudes as well. And a wise person who is trusting in God through the trials and tribulations in this life, will at the same time live a self-controlled life, being careful not in just the things they say, but also in how they live. For they are ultimately self-controlled. And remember that the broader context of James is how we are to do or act out our faith in the midst of our trials and tribulations, as James clearly displays that if we wish to have a true and undefiled religion, we wish to have a true and undefiled religion as doers of the word doers of the word we must pay careful attention to the state of our hearts as we act out our faith because when our heart is right in the midst of our trials and tribulations when we when we endure it with the right perspective and we ask god lord please help me understand this difficulty in my life for i do not understand it God will meet us there. He will grant us that wisdom. And from the wisdom stored up in our hearts through Christ, proper speech and conduct will follow. That is the teaching. And that is a deep teaching. That is a profound teaching. And it's more than just your words. Sometimes I like to joke. And sometimes I'm left wondering, "Mm, should I have said that one? I've gotten better at that as I've gotten older because I've learned, right? But this is so much deeper than that, right? Sometimes, oh, I, you know, I shouldn't have said this or that, right? We're struggling with it. It doesn't matter. There's no faking this. Spend time around a person and they will show you their heart. Listen to them, right? People, I, I, when I sit with people in the counseling context, 
and, and I, two sessions or three sessions, and I say, hey, here's what's going on. They're just they're blown away at how profound. How do you understand that? And it's not a superpower. It's the ability to just listen and to let a person share their heart. That's what people do all the time. Listen to the themes. Listen to what they say. Listen to their concerns. It's a simple biblical concept. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth will speak. But if our hearts are immersed in anxiety and in worry and fear and worldliness, doubt, or even intentional sin, our hearts will be troubled and distorted, and our words will eventually be filled with folly. Thus, according to James, our religion has the potential of becoming worthless. As I read that, I'm thinking, too, well, I hope that people still talk to me when I sit down for counseling. <laughs> this, is not a, this shouldn't be a new concept to you, though. When you, when you too are wise, you understand that this is what happens. And it's not something that we should shy away from. It's not something that we should avoid. You can't go out and say, I'm just going to stop trying to talk because my heart is wrong and people are going to notice that. I tell you the truth, brothers and sisters, people are going to notice. There's no hiding from God and God will reveal these things because your heart will do it. If your heart is wrong in time, your life is going to show that. As I said at the beginning of my last sermon, our thoughts that we have internally inside of our hearts, these have consequences. You, none of us are immune to it. You, you cannot have a filthy thought life and think that that's not going to affect you. It affects every single one of us. And if you don't tend to the garden of your heart, weeds are going to grow. It's an analogy in scripture, right? Weeds are going to grow. You are going to have issues in the garden of your heart. And those issues are going to come forth. They will come forth in your words. They will come forth in your action over time. James is showing that even more clearly here. A deceived heart, according to James, is a heart that is not self-controlled. It's not self-controlled in speech. It's not uh, controlled in, in, in conduct. Think for a moment the great damage that those who profess Christ with their mouths, yet display no self-control in their words or lives, the great damage that they can do to the image of God, the great damage that they have done to the image of God. This is the true meaning behind the third commandment, that God's people must not take the Lord's name in vain. It's more than just two words strung together, though that is included. It is to, profa- it is to profess uh, Christ and, and, and God is Lord, and then to profane him with your life, to disregard him with your life, to drag uh, God's name into the, into the mud. Brothers and sisters, we are Christians together. Our actions have consequences in our own lives, in our marriages, in our families, and in the church. When you sin, it is not in a vacuum. Your sins affect other people. Your sins affect other people. Our words is one of the ways that our sins can affect others. But we, we, we bear an image. We bear an image of, uh, of our own name, of our family's name, of our church's name, but ultimately of God. And when we do not live a self-controlled life and we do not bridle the tongue and we live in such a way that profanes the, the name of the Lord, that, that brings his name down to such a low place. This, this is what it's referring to. In Matthew 15, 8 through 9, Jesus quotes from Isaiah 29, 13, saying, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. It's referring back to, to Israel, those who were not uh, of, of Christ. In vain do they worship me. In vain do they worship me. He makes note that there was worship. But he says it was in vain, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And what was Jesus talking about in these verses? In fifteen ten through 20, Jesus goes on to explain to his audience that it is not foods that defile a person. Rather, it is the words that come out 
of one's mouth that defile a person. You can go back and check this for yourself, Matthew 15, 10 through 20. Church, both James and Jesus tell us that out of the abundance of our hearts, our mouth will speak. And if we are not walking with the Lord, our speech will not be disciplined, our conduct not proper, and our religion will be in vain. These are heavy words that James has. In vain, worthless. When a Christian that is not properly walking with the Lord talks, wisdom will not flow. And what is the outcome of such a Christian? They deceive their own hearts, thinking that they're right with God, right? You ever talk to a person like this? I have. You can clearly see there's not wisdom in their life. And they say, I'm right with Jesus. Are you going to the church? Nope. Are you loving your wife? Nope. Are you doing these things? Nope. But I'm right with God. I know I am. Interesting, because you're just spewing folly right now. And it's interesting that James says this. What have they done, according to James? They have deceived their own hearts. How interesting. That's exactly what's happened. They think they're okay. What a dangerous place to be. And what will their deceived hearts ultimately produce? A religion that is worthless. There was once a time in my Christian life I had not seen this acted out in front of me. Now that I've seen it, the, the level of how profound that is, is so much greater. Watching people actually do this. And it should remind all of us, watch our hearts, for from it, these things will flow. And we have to be careful because we can deceive our own hearts thinking that we're okay if we're not walking with the Lord. If your heart is not where it should be over time, it will show, James tells us, you cannot fake genuine faith in Christ, at least not in the long run. Therefore, we must be careful to cultivate and tend to the gardens of our hearts. For only then will our speech be sweet, Proverbs 16.24, and our religion be genuine. This leads to James' second point on what defines true religion. In verse 27, after explaining to the reader what a false religion looks like, an uncontrolled tongue, because one's heart is not right with God, James goes on to tell us exactly what pure and undefiled religion should look like. So verse 26, this is what it doesn't look like, a person who's just not in control of their tongue or body. But here's what it should look like. And he gives us two things. To visit orphans and widows in their afflictions, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Again, James has a surface point, while simultaneously providing a much deeper point in the exhortation of true religion. After explaining that the wise and true follower of Christ will control their tongue because one's tongue mimics one's heart, James then logically flows to the second practical point of Christian living, that there will be a genuine concern for others, or a, quote, looking after orphans and widows in their distress. These, quote, widows and orphans that James lists serve to symbolize true human need. James clearly is referencing the need to care for literal orphans and literal widows and their distress. This certainly is part of what he's saying. But that was not his ultimate point. We need to keep both the structural context and the historical context of James in mind to fully appreciate, understand, and apply his teaching. Remember that at the time of James's writing, the world that the New Testament was written in was profoundly different than ours. A true widow or a true orphan did not have a state or a government to rely on. And to meet the definition of a true widow or a true orphan, such a person did not have a family to rely on either. They were truly destitute, and they were truly in need. They had nothing. They literally had nothing. Oftentimes, these people would die in this state. 
they were nothing, according to society, and this person would have had nothing to give back. They were simply needy with nothing to give in return. This person would have needed greatly someone to help them were they to survive. In other words, James tells us that in the practice of our true religion, we should have a deep concern for those who cannot help themselves and those who have nothing to offer in return. This is why true faith lived out by true believers will always display a deep love and concern for the needs of others. This isn't anything new. It shouldn't be new. Jesus displays his teaching when he summarized the entire law, if you remember. He summarizes the entire law in these simple yet profound words. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and prophets. James is mimicking exactly what Christ spoke. This is the same message in a different way, in a different context. Love God with everything and love your neighbor and surely you will fulfill all the requirements of the law and the prophets. In the same way that a right heart in the midst of living in this trial-filled life will produce the right words, a right heart will also produce the right priorities in this life, namely a deep care and concern for others. This is why Paul says in his concluding words of the book of Galatians that the church should do good with every opportunity, especially to those who are in the household of faith. For proper living according to scripture has always had a deep concern for others. Old Testament Israel was often commanded to be concerned for those within Israel, including those who lived within and even near the lands of Israel. Deuteronomy 15:11 states, "There will never cease to be poor in the land, therefore I, I the Lord, command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land." And so the first part of verse 27, we see that James was calling for his readers to show compassion to the most helpless and needy around them. James knew that the church had troubles of its own, but he was again reminding the people that when one's heart is focused and fixed on Christ, not only will kind and caring words come out of their mouths, kind and caring actions towards others will surely also follow. Perhaps one of the saddest dimensions of our day is that so many Christians have become so absorbed in their own faith. So many individual Christians living for Jesus, right? Many people immerse themselves in so much study and learning that they don't have the time or the concern or the care for others. They have to tend to their great theological um, knowledge. I'm sure, church, you are all wise enough to know that that does not in any way, shape, or form mean that theology is bad. It means that if we are not doing these things with a great concern of our own self-control and without a great concern for others, James is saying your religion is worthless if you're not doing anything with it. Because James is a book of action. And James is clearly calling his readers to act upon what he defines here as pure and undefiled religion. Because if we are truly religious... Our lives will have a deep care and concern for others. That's the point. As John says uh, in 1 John 3, 17 through 19, listen carefully to these words. 1 John 3, 17 through 19. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love 
in word or talk only, but in deed and in truth. Church, how do we know when we look at things like this? How do we know that James is talking about so much more than just those words, right? As Pastor Joe has said many times, being a biblicist, we can't just read it. And if I was a biblicist, I, I would be so grieved that I missed all that James is saying here. Because one of the things that we do, one of the things that I uh, strive to do, one of the things I know Pastor Joe strives to do, is to make these connections. And when you have good, sound theology, guess what? You see it everywhere. Right? I'm referencing Old Testament, New Testament. I'm re- referencing three to four different books, at least in each one of those. Because the same theme is there. It's, it's why... I hold to the theologies that I do. It's why we preach and teach the theologies that we do at Emmaus. And that's, that's how you can come to conclude that the, these things are there. When you have to create a plethora of charts and diagrams and, and, and lines to try and draw, to try and make these very interesting connections where you have to really stretch them, Scripture, for how deep it is, is also very simple. And you will see these themes throughout. And James is, is teaching on something that's really easy to glance over. Visit orphans' windows in their, in their distress. Great. Okay, I washed my tongue today. I went uh, to the old people's home, visited them. I'm good. You are far from good, according to James. Right? You missed everything that James was trying to say. Because it's so much deeper than that. It's so much deeper than that. And that's why we're, we're looking at these multiple scriptures to show the depth of what James is really saying. And lastly... As we go into the second part of verse 27, after exhorting his readers to bridle their tongues and to care for the orphans and widows of the world, James then calls his readers to keep themselves unspotted from the world. He says you must remain unspotted from the world. This word unspotted can also be translated as unsoiled or unpolluted because to be unstained by the world is to maintain both personal integrity and moral purity from the heart. To live unpolluted is to refuse to allow the world to set the standards for our beliefs and our conduct. Instead, the word of God, which drives our pure religion, will set the standards for how we live in this world. By the world, James means the broader society that lives without any regard for God and his word. According to John 14.30, Satan is the prince of this world, and the lost are the children of this world. Furthermore, this word world, or cosmos, in the Greek carries a wide range of meaning in the New Testament, But James uses it in the sense of the spirit of this age, which reflects a godless and immoral agenda against Christ. Our world today is filled with hedonism, relativism, humanism, many other isms that could follow there. And our world largely resembles the world that Paul describes in in Romans 1. A world that God has given over to depravity, degradation, and disgrace. This is what James means by the world. James says that a religion that does not emphasize moral and spiritual purity in this evil age is a defiled and useless one. But as the children of God, as the children of God, we are in the world physically, but not of this world spiritually. John 17, 11 through 16 talks about this, so does Colossians 2 8. We are sent into this world for the glory of Christ. And it is only if we are able to properly maintain the right separation from this world that we can truly serve and evangelize to those living in this world. The true Christian, the true Christian, 
must walk carefully, controlling his inward thoughts, James's first point, so that his actions will focus on others, not on themselves, James's second point. And as the Christian lives out his or her life, they must be extremely cautious that their friendship is not with this world, James's third point. James just defined for us Christianity in a very profound way. That's what it's like. Tend to the garden of your hearts. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Care for others, right? Love others as yourself. Make sure that as you walk in this world, you do so with wisdom. You have summarized everything. You have, you have summarized the Christian faith. But if we're not careful, brothers and sisters, as we walk in this world, our hearts will become conformed to this world, and our words and our actions will, short, will shortly follow thereafter. <clears throat> Scripture warns us that such a love of this world will in the end result in being condemned with this world. 1 Corinthians 11.32 the story of Lot is a good extra, uh, uh, illustration of this principle. First, Lot pitched his tent towards Sodom just a little bit. Just going to look. Right? And then, and then eventually he moves into Sodom. Before long, Sodom moved into him. He plunders his testimony to the people of God, even to his own family. And when judgment fell on Sodom, Lot lost everything. But Lot was, was of God. Lot sinned, and God restored him. But the teaching with this story is clear. To become too close to this world has very dangerous and dire consequences. Lot isn't the only example of this. And none of us are immune to this teaching. Many, many people, unfortunately many Christians, live too close to this world. And this is why in Philippians 2.15, Paul challenges us to be blameless and harmless children of God in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Church, it's a beautiful world that we live in. It truly is. For after all, this world is the creation of God, but the sin that entered through Adam has spread across the entire globe, creating a very tainted and polluted world, and the ways of this world can deeply pollute our thinking, our speaking, our speaking and our doing. Unfortunately, many who profess to be Christians give evidence of this pollution. Many Christians have set aside the clear teachings of Scripture because they do not want to be out of step with what the world says. It's getting less and less popular to be a Christian, right? Lord is sovereign. We trust in him, but that's, that's true. Every one of us feels that. People who walk too close to the world, their, their authority is, is not the Bible. It's not the Bible. This is, this, this is profound to me. As I talk to people and, and, I, and I ask them why they believe these things, and you look at all these revolutions that are going on, and they use reasoning or, or other things. They use uh, social media trends or cultural movements or, or opinion polls to come to these conclusions. And I say, what about Scripture? I'm in education. I even teach for a Christian institution. I am deeply concerned at what so-called Christians are coming to conclude and are clearly saying in the things that they write. It's very, very concerning of what people who profess to be Christians say. It's very clear that what has happened is they have become very clearly polluted by this world. Many in the culture today who profess Christ with their mouths have been polluted in their speaking. They talk just like everybody else. Their speech is not cautious. It is not godly. It is not self-controlled. Their focus is on themselves, not on the good of others. Such people, according to James, live a worthless religion. They have become stained by this world. Their religion is worthless, and it has polluted their behavior these people order their lives in the same way as those who make no profession at all. They are worldly Christians, having become what I think might be one of the most dangerous words of them all in the New Testament, lukewarm. 
you're not familiar with what the scriptures, especially the book of Revelation, teaches on lukewarm, look it up. It should become very, very concerning to live as a lukewarm Christian. Brothers and sisters, we believers in Christ are the light of this world. We are the light of this world. We are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that we may declare the praises of Him who called us out of darkness into this wonderful light. 1 Peter 2.9 Our lives, therefore, should look different than that of the world. Before anything else, we are Christians first and foremost. We should not try to mimic all of the ways and trends of this world. Consider your own life and how you live. What about your life displays that you are a child of God. What makes your life different from your unsaved neighbors, friends, or coworkers? I've considered this myself. You know, those people across the, the, the street, they're nice. They do good things. They're not Christians. What do I do that makes me different? If I'm the light of the world, they are not. It's very convicting to think this way. This is what James directs us to do. There was a time when the broader church considered it to be essential to be different from the world. Surely the Reformed Baptists, true Reformed Baptists do. Right? Praise God for that. It's not to say that Reformed Baptists are the only ones, but one thing I know to be certain about the Reformed Baptist brethren that, that I've come to know, that Pastor Joe's come to know, there is a great desire for Scripture first. Right, The five solas truly are upheld. There is a, churches to be different. How we do church is, is holy and set apart. The Puritans were a good model of this, but today many churches have come to believe that to be too different, no, this will push people away. They have chosen instead to become seeker-friendly, purporting the message that the church can look and act just like the world as long as they add the word Jesus to all they do. They have music, we'll just sing music, we'll sing about Jesus. So that's what they do, they have this business, we'll do, we'll just sell stuff for Jesus. We do the same thing the world does, we put Jesus' stamp on it, and everything's going to be just fine. But because of this, many churches are now looking more and more like the world. You can't even tell the difference, right? Go to a positive psychology movement seminar, and then go to some of these... um, very watered-down Christian seminars, you hardly can tell a difference between the two. They forget that instead the people of God are to be a place of holy worship, for we are the dwelling place of the temple of God. We are that temple. This is why we must be holy in the way that we live our lives. As James will later say in chapter 4, verse 4, Do not know, do you not know, that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Therefore, church, may we take heed to live holy and devout lives, allowing Scripture to be our guide, Scripture to be our ultimate guide, being careful not to fall into the temptations and deceptions of this world. As we move toward closing, I'd like to offer you three points of reflective application on these two uh, verses. You'll know a Christian by their fruit. James presents to us here in these two verses very uh, clear and practical fruits that should be produced by true believers. He summarizes it very well. But this fruit can only be produced from a changed heart that is being transformed into the image of Christ. And so, point number one. A right heart and true faith will produce the right words. A right heart and true faith will produce the right words. What was the very first thing, church, that God did in the beginning pages of Scripture? I thought about this. What was the very first thing God did? He spoke. God spoke. And out of the pure wisdom of God, as He spoke into existence all things, 
He produced all that we know and see. Words are powerful. Just as the words of Scripture give us insight into who God is, because it is His words, so too the words that we speak are a window into the contents of our own hearts. If you want to know what is in someone's heart, I said this earlier, spend time with them. Listen to the continual themes that flow out of their speech. They will tell you. Our desire should be a model after the holiness of God and to produce wisdom through our speech because a Christian that is trained and disciplined him or herself to control their tongue will display self-control in how they talk and what they say. If you have a controlled tongue, brothers and sisters, you have your body in check. That is the point. And so work hard to discipline yourself in the word of God so that the words that you produce will be words of wisdom and encouragement and not words of folly. Number two, a right heart and true faith will have a deep love and concern for others. We'll have a deep love and concern for others. When we discipline ourselves and allow God to work through our trials and tribulations in this life, as He works to conform us into the image of His Son, our focus and priorities, they begin to change, don't they? In our sinfulness, we are utterly selfish, but in Christ, our concern becomes more for others. James tells us that pure and undefiled religion is to care for the widows and orphans of the world. These, quote, widows and orphans symbolized the most destitute of individuals in James's time. And these orphans and widows would have had nothing to give in return. This is why James uses these two distinct individuals on this point to tell the readers that they are to care for the lowest of the low, knowing that they will receive nothing in return. It is an act of complete selflessness. But this is the, uh, this is the faith that Christ calls us to. One that continually places the needs of others above our own. Paul says these words in light of that. Philippians 2, 3 through 8. Listen carefully to this as we, as we begin to... I'll get to my third point and we'll work towards a, a conclusion. But listen carefully to Philippians 2, 3 through 8. This is an exhortation from Paul to the church. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He, referring to Christ, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, James is asking us to model the things of God. The speech of God, the actions of God, model Christ. God should serve as the model for our speech. Christ serves as the model of how we should love others. And so the question presents itself, where is your focus and concern in this life? If you're led by sin, your focus is on the advancement and prosperity of yourself. It's on the focus of prospering yourself. But if you're led by the Spirit, your focus is on the care and concern for others. Hear this point carefully. I'm not saying that you should care nothing about yourself, for you too are made in the image of God. You are a child of God. There is great value in you. The, 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 The Spirit dwells within you. You are the temple of God. So care for your person. Care for your spiritual body. Care for your physical body. But you should care most importantly about your spiritual state within your heart because your spiritual state will determine where your heart is. And where your heart is will direct what your priorities are in this life. And if your priorities in this life, if you desire desire to live a, a life of true religion, they should be on the selfless care and concern 
for others. Point number three, a right heart and a true faith will live for God first and foremost in this life. It will live for God first and foremost. You're a Christian first. When our hearts are right with Christ, disciplined speech and selfless care towards others will come forth. They will flow forth naturally. But even more than this, God will give the wisdom of how to rightly live in this sinful and polluted world. So, brothers and sisters, ask yourself this question. Is your life more marked by this world or is it more marked by Christ? Are your priorities in this life more defined by the world or more defined by Christ? Does the time and energy that God has given to you go more toward the things of this world or more toward Christ? I heard recently a very simple yet very profound quote. And this quote went something like this. Imagine what the world would look like if Christians spent as much time reading the Bible as they spent on social media. Mm. It's a pretty powerful statement. Maybe you could remove social media from that quote and replace it with television or sports or video games. The list could go on. You could personalize it. But the point being, what is having a larger influence on your personal life? Is it Christ or is it this world? Because according to James, if we desire a true and undefiled religion, we will walk with the utmost caution in keeping ourselves from being unstained by the things of this world. So walk carefully, brothers and sisters, and be certain that Christ is your treasure, not anything else in this world. In conclusion, what James presents to us as pure and undefiled religion is religion that none of us can perfectly live up to. All of us have failed to properly control our tongue, All of us have failed to love others as we should. And if we're honest, most of us are probably not comfortable with how much this world really has had an influence on us more than the things of God. But that's the point. This type of living is only possible in Christ. Only a heart that has been transformed by Christ can produce wise and God-honoring speech. Only a heart that has been transformed by Christ places the needs of others above ourselves. And only a heart that's been transformed by Christ can navigate this world with the ability to live in this world while not being of this world. This is why we should consider difficulties in our lives as joy. Because God is at work in producing in us goodness and godliness. And so as we look at the remaining chapters of James, as he goes on to expand upon each of these three points, we will do so with the understanding that it is Christ and Christ alone who allows us to put our faith into action. Church, there's much that's been said. These are hard things to do. But when our hearts are right with God and we follow after Christ, He is faithful. He transforms us so that we can live this way. The world lives against the things of Christ, but may this not be so for us. May we discipline ourselves through Christ to have godly speech, to have a genuine love and concern for others, and to live lives that pursue Christ above all else. For by living this way, we will certainly display true religion. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the words of James. I pray, Lord, that these words from your word penetrate all of our hearts, Lord. Help us to strive to be more like Christ. That's the point. Help us, Lord, to turn from our sin. We know that you are sanctifying. James reminds us of that. None of us do these things perfectly, but we know that in you this is possible. May we have hearts that are fully devoted to you. In the name of Christ we pray.